2: Hey, it's the Bowery Boys. Hey. Hi there. Welcome to the Bowery Boys. This is Greg Young.
3: And this is Tom Myers. And today we are marking the 160th anniversary of one of the most dramatic moments in New York City history. The Civil War Draft Riots.
2: For several days, starting on July 13th, 1863, thousands of people took to the streets in violent protest, fueled initially by anger over conscription to the Union Army, which sent New Yorkers to the front lines of the Civil War. At least it sent those who couldn't afford to buy their way out of the draft.
3: And within 24 hours, it quickly turned violent with New Yorkers attacking other New Yorkers. For several days, nobody was safe, especially African-American New Yorkers. Today, we remember the Civil War
2: generally in iconic terms, big terms, good versus evil and right versus wrong. The draft riots, however, present a nuanced reinterpretation of that storyline. It places New York City not outside the significance of the battlefield, but squarely within it. The Union was not united, but an assortment of different viewpoints. That Lincoln and the Union Army succeeded is even more remarkable when you realize the dissension from within. The dissension which we'll describe
3: today. We originally recorded this show all the way back in 2011. And I think it really remains one of the most important shows mm-hmm. to us, because we realize that in, in some ways, our own city often seems to have forgotten it.
2: Yeah, there are very few memorials and plaques in existence at all to these troubling days. A very odd situation, given the numerous other markers to other tragic and unsettling moments in New York City history. Yeah. In particular, given the number of African-Americans who were murdered in the streets during these riots and the number of black families who fled New York in terror, we think this is a very significant oversight.
3: After listening to today's show, we recommend that you scroll back to our shows from 2011 um, because this was actually part two of a three-part series on New York City during the Civil War. So, for even more context about this era, be sure to listen to episode 126 on Fernando Wood, the scoundrel mayor of New York, and episode 128, the conspiracies and hoaxes of 1864.
2: But today we present one of the most tragic and disturbing moments in our cities and the nation's history the Civil War draft riots of 1863. the American Civil War began on April 12, 1861, with the attack of Fort Sumter by Confederate forces. This was a culmination, of course, of years of animosity between the northern states and the southern states over these issues like slavery and states' authority. Now, of course, geographically, New York is in the Union, but its allegiances have always been heavily divided, During the first two years, there was a huge swell of patriotism that filled the city, and thousands of New Yorkers formed or joined militias to join into the army.
3: Including many people who had just arrived, immigrants from Ireland and Germany. I wouldn't, yes, they would at
2: first rush to volunteer in those first years because there would be a lot of money attached to join these militias. Uh-huh. And if they had just gotten here and they had a family with them, it seemed at first like a really good idea, even though sometimes the political leaders that would best represent them, say those in Tammany Hall, would be a little divisive and very against the war, as I mentioned in the Fernando Wood podcast. Now... Prominent businessmen during this time funded the war effort. Some prominent men even joined the war effort, like Frederick Law Olmsted, the architect of Central Park. Right. The city was greatly transformed during this period, like the shipyards over the Brooklyn Navy Yard, of course, were lined with brand new war vessels. Many businesses like Brooks Brothers, for instance, profited quite handsomely from the war because they were giving these contracts to make uniforms and there would be gun manufacturers in the city and iron foundries making all sorts of material for
3: battle. But city businessmen were also somewhat divided, weren't they, over whether or not we should be at war with the South, because the South was a great trading partner, and it well, was an integral part of the city's economy.
2: Yeah, there is many different nuanced opinions at this time, because, you know, you a lot of people were very pro-union in terms of patriotism and being part of pride for your country. But then a lot of them were tied financially, the strings down to the South. You know, millions and millions of dollars of customers and even debt was owed to the city. New
3: York banks were financing plantations in the South.
2: Now, the new president of the United States, Abraham Lincoln, divided loyalties. And it was no better seen than in the newspapers of New York of the day, The two that I'm sure we're going to mention in this show, on one hand, you had the New York Tribune, which was a very pro-union newspaper that was owned by Horace Greeley. A big Republican. On the other hand, you have Fernando's brother, Benjamin Wood, who owned the New York Daily News, and it was decidedly anti-union and very pro-South. And we should probably note not the same Daily News that we have today. A different one with the same name, of course. Now, by 1862, enthusiasm in the city for this war effort began to falter a little bit. First of all, there was a huge financial turmoil. There was a lot of inflation and a shortage of money. I mean, all of the coinage, for instance, uh, medals and things, of course, went to the war effort. During this time, the Union was actually suffering a lot of heavy losses. Mounting death tolls began to sort of drift back to New York. There was Because of all these New York volunteer troops, New York actually experienced a great loss of life. So, of course, the excitement for this war slowly began to dissipate. Meanwhile, New Yorkers were frightened that they were the next target. And so they worked really quickly to try to strengthen their harbor defenses. So the forts in New York Harbor and in Long Island Sound they worked quickly to try to get them up to, to shape. Now, a lot more anti-war sentiment grew during this period, flamed, of course, by a lot of these Copperhead speakers, these pro-slavery, pro-South speakers. And the immigrant population began to see themselves as nothing more than basic, like, chattel for, mm-hmm. for Lincoln, just people who are being sacrificed
3: for this cause that they didn't particularly believe in. And when you say the cause, you mean the cause of preserving the Union or the fight against slavery? They were more upset about the
2: slavery issue, actually. There was a fear, a growing fear, as we'll see, that if you freed the slaves, then you would have a new workforce that would come in, and they would be the bottom rung, and they would be the cheapest workforce, and they would take all the jobs from these newly arrived immigrants who had just gotten here and who were at present at the bottom rung of the workforce. So there was a lot of resentment at the potential of what could happen here. This was heightened on January 1st of 1863 when Lincoln announced the Emancipation Proclamation, which freed the slaves in the Confederate states. And a lot of black men and women then escaped north at the news of this. You know, so in a city that's divided already, that's so heavily democratic and anti-war, this announcement was kind of a turning point.
3: So the Emancipation Proclamation freed the Southern slaves— and slavery only existed at that point in the Southern states, and and the South had already seceded. Correct? Yeah. So the this was symbolic. It was a very symbolic. I mean, he, Lincoln actually was heavily criticized
2: for this because many people thought, "Well, what does that really mean?" I mean, they they don't want to be part of our country anyway. So, why, why do they care if you announce that the slaves are going to be freed? But it was a significant stand, needless to say. Now, so I've gotten us up here to eighteen sixty three. I need to set a few characters here in place because we will be mentioning them. Now, obviously, Fernando Wood is no longer mayor at this particular time. The mayor of New York City is a man named George Opdyke. He was a wealthy dry goods importer. He was a Republican, believe it or not. He was elected because of this fracturing of the Democrats because Fernando Wood had arrogantly had his own political machine against Tammany Hall. They split the votes. And so a Republican was able to be elected, but it was a very narrow margin. He'd just barely gone it. In fact, it was a little over one-third of the vote. So clearly, it was not a consensus in the city. And he was Republican, and he was very anti-slavery. Okay. So we've got the Republican mayor... Yes. And then we have a Democratic governor of the state of New York. That, that would be Horatio Seymour. He had already served one term, and this was a new one. He was re- re-elected that year in 1863. This was also a very close race, and you know, typically the governor's seat during the 19th century is held by Republicans. So it's a little odd. There's a Democrat here. Right. By the way, perhaps because of the events that we are about to describe, neither of them would be elected to another term – now onto the police department. Uh, it's operated by the state. Now thanks to Mr. Wood, if you r- recall from the solo podcast, there were two police departments. There was right. one one driven by the city, one by the state, the, the metropolitan's st- and the municipal's. Right. So the state is now Operating the police department. And so the city is just a representative on the board of it. So that creates some tensions and some inefficiencies that make the riots a little worse. The head of the police department in New York City at the time was a man named John A. Kennedy. But also during this time, there were state militias. Most of them are not in the city at the time. I think that maybe you'll explain that in a second. However, the head of one of the militias is a man named Colonel Henry O'Brien. So of the four gentlemen that I've mentioned, by the end of the week that we're about to describe, one of them will be gravely injured, and one of them won't survive the week.
3: Yikes. Well, we'll get to all of that.
2: So can you explain sort of the fundamentals of the draft itself? Like, when did it
3: occur? What exactly happened and riled people about it? Right. Why was it even necessary? And the, the short answer is because, quite obviously, the North's military was too small, and they needed more men. For the first two years of the war, the Union's army consisted of four different grades of troops. There was the regular army, the state's militias that you just mentioned, three-month volunteers, and three-year volunteers. The Union's army was mostly the volunteers, and the president had originally called for 75,000 three-month volunteers. The city obliged and sent 8,000 men, Of those 75,000. Back when
2: things were rosier, Right,
3: so the city was sending a lot of men. Now, by the spring of 1862, the Confederacy had started drafting men. And a year later, the North would start to do the same, simply because they weren't hiring enough men or taking on enough volunteers. Unfortunately, the war was not ending very quickly either. So, the next year, in March of 1863, Congress passed the National Conscription Act, which dictated that all single men aged 20 to 45, and married men who were 20 to 35 were subject to a draft lottery. If you were picked in the lottery, you could get out of it by providing somebody else to fill your spot. Okay,
2: well, that sounds reasonable, I, su- I guess. if I
3: suppose, yeah. I mean, if you can find somebody. Yeah. Or you could pay a $300 fee, which would cover the government's expense in recruiting a person to take your place. And $300 in 1863 was a lot of money. That was about a year's wage for somebody.
2: Well, that seems like that's probably what's at issue here, because $300 is not easy to come by in mid-19th century New York
3: City. Right, or mid-19th century United States. Anywhere, right. And I think that people were taking issue with both aspects of this. They didn't want to be drafted, and they didn't want to have rich people buying their way out of it. The draft was set to start on Saturday, July 11th, 1863. So was a tense situation already, as the city's diverse population was reacting to the war, reacting to the draft. And it really pitted a lot of different groups of people against each other.
2: Obviously rich and poor, obviously immigrants and nativists, or people who've right. been here for longer.
3: And, and the immigrants and nativists w- became more complicated because it was really mostly the poorest, most recently arrived immigrants, mostly Irish, against African Americans who who had been in New York City for over 100 years at that time. I think
2: it's important to note also that black people that lived in New York lived all over New York and lived in all the different neighborhoods. And they weren't just...
3: Right. Mixed po- in with white residents as and well. Because,
2: and because slavery in New York had been abolished for a few decades. There were actually middle-class black New Yorkers at this time, and they lived in certain neighborhoods, and there, there were, of course,
3: poor black people who lived, right. you know, among everywhere else. Like, it wasn't... Right. there were black teachers and physicians and, and clergy, but there was also a black workforce that was competing for jobs with recently arrived immigrants. We can sum this up as a rich man's war, but a poor man's fight. hmm In 1860, the city's population was 800,000 people, and 25% of them, 200,000 people, had immigrated from Ireland. So... Just Ireland, like one-fourth of the city. Right. And the politicians themselves were not helping out the matter. Governor Seymour himself reacted angrily to the draft law, saying, Remember this, the bloody, treasonable, and revolutionary doctrine of public necessity can be proclaimed by a mob as well as a government. So he's already kind of putting out into the universe the word mob here. Right. And y- y- Taking y- back our government. Because here we are, in 1863, really also fighting over strong states' rights or a federal government that wanted to exert more muscle. And as we know, New York is torn about this,
2: so it's not surprising to hear this from a governor. And also, New Yorkers already... Th- thought that they had given enough, that there had been, you know, there had already been hundreds of New Yorkers that had died
3: on the battle line. They thought that they had given well enough to the union. And the newspapers that you mentioned also were fanning the flames, you know, getting people worked up against the draft. They were the the
2: worst. I mean, the newspapers were absolutely the worst. And
3: they, of course, had to sell issues every morning. But the New York World, the one controlled by Fernando Wood and August Belmont, exclaimed, the draft was profoundly repugnant to the American mind. So it was no less than anti-American. But to be fair, I guess,
2: I mean, since then, of course, our country has had drafts and there's been equal opposition to them. That has been very fair as well. So, I mean, I guess you have to keep keep that in mind as we continue our discussion.
3: Well, the Daily News actually thought that the draft was an attempt by the Republicans to weed out Democrats in the city. So the summer was heating up, and and the city was preparing for the July 11th draft to begin. So the city was divided into districts with every eligible man's name written down on a slip of paper and put inside a barrel. And the process would be run by a Democrat named Robert Nugent, who was also Irish, and he was a colonel of the 69th Regiment. So they were already anticipating that, that there could be some problems here. There would be some resistance. Now, back on the war front, in the spring of 1863, the Confederate forces invaded the north through Virginia's Shenandoah Valley, and Lincoln asked Governor Seymour for 20,000 men to join the front for 30 days, which was really bad timing because this drained northern soldiers out of the New York area and New England. So this just left the area without much protection. So here it is, right before the draft begins, and only 1,900 military men were left in the city. Many still had to be organized into
2: troops. And some of them were at the harbor defenses, for
3: instance. Right, working yeah. in, the, in the city's forts. And then about 200 of those were in the city's invalid corps, which were wounded soldiers. So... I mean, that should just show you the the
2: lack of planning, if you ask me. The fact that they placed a lot of the security guard
3: onto the invalid corps. But they weren't expecting to need them. But the city was already nervous. I mean, they were worried that there were some infiltrators, some spies who were going to try to start fires. And what if southern forces actually invaded the city? So that Saturday night on July 11th, 1,236 names were drawn from the barrel. And that was it for the day. It would resume on Monday. The next morning, the names were published in the papers and people gathered around to read the names from their homes and, and bars and pubs and they gathered out on the sidewalks and they discussed what they should do next. Stories were already circulating about rich men who had already paid the $300 to get out of it. So there were already seething tensions.
2: Not to mention, one of their friends might have been one of the names. And they're like, well, no, you shouldn't have to go just because you can't raise the $300. And some of those people may have desperately tried to raise it and they didn't have it. Something that was abstract
3: became very real very quickly.
0: As a
1: professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills.
0: The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn
1: more at meta.com slash metaverseimpact.
3: In the decades before the Civil War, slavery's grip on America tightened. But soon, a diverse group of abolitionists, both black and white, Follow American History Tellers on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge this season's American History Tellers, the Underground Railroad, early and ad-free, right now on Wondery+. So
2: it's Monday, July 13th at the crack of dawn. On the streets outside, you may see Newsies with their bundles of newspapers, early morning workers heading to the restaurants and hotels, scuttling to work. There was a society lady by the name of Mrs. Hilton who had gotten up that early and looked out her window, drew back her blinds, and she observed something strange outside in the street. There were men and women and children, kind of not nicely dressed, heading north, streaking all up in one direction. They looked to her like, because she made these kinds of assumptions, they looked like they were all Germans, and that they were heading up for some sort of early morning festival, though she couldn't figure out exactly what it was. Except these people weren't holding festive items. They were holding bricks and pieces of pipe and shovels and even pans. Some of them may have been German, but they were not going to a festival. So this was the very first formation of a mob that Monday. They were streaking from all corners of the city. And they would stop by factories on the way up north. And in the factories, they would encourage other people to join them and say, come on, we are, we're sick of this draft. We're, we're going to do something about it. Soon, thousands upon thousands of people who were incensed by the newspapers and all the gossip that they had heard that Sunday streaked up north and met at a southeast corner of Central Park, so kind of where the Plaza Hotel is nearby that area. When they arrived there, there was a rally with lots of speakers who were shouting demand and inciting this early morning crowd. They initially had one purpose for gathering here. It was to stop the draft and protest in front of the draft offices. In this particular case, the 9th District Draft Office at 46th Street and 3rd Avenue. It seems so organized compared to everything that happens later. Some of them would be carrying no draft signs. They would actually say no draft on them. They'd be chanting, shouting, some of them would be singing, but there's already a sinister element going on here. As they all walk down to that draft office, some of them begin to like rip telegraph poles down. Some of them actually are pulling up rails from the New York Central Railroad, you know, that's going down Fourth Avenue here. The force of the mob would even stop the horse-drawn streetcars, and they would be prevented from moving, and they would they would force people out of the streetcars, and they would scream at people and start beating up on the drivers. By 9 a.m. already, there was a lot of violence in the street, and people are very confused as to what's going on. It's happening so quickly that there were quite an inadequate force of protecting the draft office at the time. The draft was slated to begin at 10 a.m. at this draft office of 46th Street, outside already, there were thousands of people shouting and threatening. And then the people inside saw and observed that the local fire department was here. Now, normally it would be a sign of help, but this is a mid-19th century fire department, a volunteer fire department. These were members of the notorious Black Joke Engine Company. They were not there to save or help anybody initially because some of the members of the Black Joke had actually gotten chosen in the draft on Saturday. They had all believed that they would be exempt from the draft because of course the city would need firemen far from protecting people they weren't leading the pack here and so all of a sudden through the glass would be stones and bricks smashing the windows the entire building would soon be aflame with people shouting outside down with the rich men down with the rich men the invalid corps they were being driven back by the mob gunfire was exchanged. At this point, several rioters were already killed. These wounded soldiers were beaten back severely. The superintendent, police officer Kennedy, who was out of uniform at this particular time, he goes up to the draft office. He's recognized by one of the rioters who screams, let's go in, boys, stick together and we can lick all the damn police. So they run towards Kennedy, who's 60 years old, They knock him unconscious, they take him and they hurl him over the railing, and he like splashes into a puddle in a vacant lot. And so they all run down there and they're going to viciously pummel him, and probably with the intentions of murdering him. Luckily for Kennedy, he actually looked up while he was being beaten and saw a gentleman walking by. There was a, a politician that he recognized. He shouted out to him. The politician ran down, got Kennedy, and ferreted him away to the police headquarters at 300 Mulberry Street.
3: So here we have the chief of police beaten unconscious. It's just one morning
2: and there's already so much violence and it's so out of control that the head of the police department has been gravely injured here. All of this has kind of untethered the mob by this point. They begin randomly storming houses and buildings and just attacking people on the street that they have some kind sort of beef with. Now, the focal point of this initial rage and this sort of mob activity was on 3rd Avenue, just south of this burning draft office. But eventually, throughout the day, events will start spreading throughout the city. It will, it will be like a spreading wildfire almost. By noon, in the words of one diarist, George Templeton Strong... That heat would be described as, quote, a deadly, muggy sort with a muddy sky and lifeless air. Third Avenue was a swarm of humanity from Astor Place right up to Midtown. Now, there were thousands and thousands and thousands of people. We have to keep in mind, however, they weren't all, quote, rioters. Most of them were just like spectators. Most of them were just trying to get a like a grip on what was going on. Right. And maybe some, a lot of them were protecting their own property. It was an entire afternoon of mayhem. Buildings were set on fire. Police were battling men and women and even fighting against children. Factories were being ransacked. One notable place that was lost on this particular day was the Bull's Head Hotel, who refused to serve the rioters alcohol. So they responded in kind by burning the place. By 2 p.m., the mayor, Mayor Updike, telegraphed Washington, D.C. You know, a lot of the telegraph lines have already been ripped down by this point, but some of them were still operating. He telegraphed Washington, but didn't yet request federal troops. And there was no call for martial law as of yet. You would think at this point that that would be something they would they would want. but.
3: And though I think the city was hesitant to turn over control to the federal government.
2: And they thought it would actually make it worse for the rioters. It almost fueled their activities. A key event happened that afternoon at the 2nd S- Avenue Armory at 21st Street and nearby at the Union Steamworks building. Now, both of these buildings were filled with ammunition, and the-, and the rioters wanted to get at that ammunition, of course. The police were inside the building. The rioters were outside throwing stones and bricks at the police here at the armory. Eventually, they drove the police out. The police had to escape or risk being killed Complete pandemonium inside the armory at this time. There was, of course, no planning. The rioters didn't have like strong leaders, they didn't have real purpose. So they stormed the armory. They went upstairs to steal the guns that were on like the third or second floor. Other rioters started a fire on the first floor. That fire quickly spread, trapping a few dozen rioters on those upper floors. The floor collapsed. And at least a dozen people fell into this wall of flame and were killed immediately. Many others had to jump out the window and died that way. Now, as horrible as all of this is, some even more grave things are going on throughout the city because the ire is turning towards individuals, people who had a lot to gain from the draft, or at least that's what the writers believed, like attacking the police and soldiers, attacking prominent Republican leaders, attacking rich people. But the people who were most in danger at this time were near black population. Many black families fled from their homes pretty early on. A lot of people were just randomly attacked on the street, senselessly attacked, and all of this fueled by racism. Individuals were lynched from that afternoon all the way to like the very end of what we consider to be the end of the riots. There is so many stories; they're they're just like gut-wrenching they're just horrifying to think of our streets of new york the streets that you walk every day and imagining like a
3: man lynched and hanging from a street lamp and his body burned and in doing this research we were reading about all these lynchings and people burned alive at these very familiar intersections that i think is even more unthinkable than new yorkers rioting and looting places and and attacking the wealthy Mm -hmm. It's, it's something it's something else
2: Places that catered to black people were destroyed, like, a, for instance, the, the Colored Sailor's Home, which is the, for aged men of the sea who would, would spend the ends of their lives there. That was completely torched. By the way, I, I'm going to use this word colored a lot. I realize that's sort of a distasteful word, but that these organizations were act, they had it in their title. So it was the Colored Sailor's Home. There was also the Colored Orphan Asylum. That was located at Fifth Avenue and 45th Street. This was an orphanage just for black children. Imagine that you work at the orphan asylum and you're hearing all these things that are going on and you're fearful. You don't really have any place to go, however. You're smack dab in the middle of the city. The riot is going on to the east of you and to the west of you. At 4 p.m., thousands of rioters storm the building. They begin setting it on fire, they storm through the doors, and they begin plundering the children's possessions. The workers and nurses of the place corralled all the children. They tried to escape. One reasonable rioter in the crowd like, stood up and said, wait a minute, if there's a man among you, we have to actually help these children. We have to help them. That man was was attacked by the crowd and killed. So it's a senseless thing that's happening right now. Luckily, the children were able to escape to a local police precinct. Some of the children were separated from the crowd, however. One is a six-year-old boy who was crying and left all by himself, stumbled down a street by himself. A woman who was in a building was afraid to take him in for fear that, like, had he been in that building, the mob would have attacked her and burned down that building. Luckily, a passing man saw this little boy who was scared, took him, wrapped him up in a bundle as if he was just, you know, just like a pile of wood or something, put him under his arm and was able to save the boy that way. But this is what we're kind of talking about. So by that evening, the city
3: is out of control. Another target of the rioters' wrath was, of course, the newspapers, the Republican press. The Tribune, probably more specifically. Well, earlier in the day, uh, rioters had headed down to the Tribune office at Printing House Square there by City Hall in order to confront Horace Greeley, the publisher, but he didn't show up. So they returned at nightfall at the end of this horrible day. A mob was growing outside. They were yelling, down with the Tribune! The group also headed, they raced across to the Times building, where editor Henry Raymond was armed with two machine guns that he got from the army. So imagine this, the editor of the New York Times was looking down, he had positioned these two machine guns in the building's northern windows, looking down into the open area where they expected the rioters to gather. The crowd backed off of the Times and ran back to the Tribune, where they smashed the front windows to pieces and broke down its front door and swelled inside. They were about to race up to the city floor where Greeley was waiting with his other editors and writers just as 200 policemen arrived on the scene swinging their sticks and beating heads and managed to turn back the crowds. Thankfully for the Tribune, there were 200 policemen on the scene because the police force was totally depleted by its contribution that it had made to the Union Army, not to mention that their chief of police was unconscious. As for the other city leaders, uh, they were meeting that night, a group of them, including Mayor Updike, were meeting at the St. Nicholas Hotel, which is right across the street from City Hall. So even into the evening, the political leaders were arguing amongst themselves about what to do. The Republicans pleading with the mayor to declare martial law, But Democrats wanted there to be a political, tamer solution, and the mayor sided with the Democrats and boss Tweed, and didn't request at that point, Monday evening, any federal help. He did ask, however, for law-abiding citizens to join a volunteer force to help defend the city, and some did, and were actually sworn in immediately at the police headquarters and given badges and clubs. Finally, at the end of the night, Mayor Updike did ask the War Department to send New York's troops back to the city and for neighboring state militias to sort of stand by and stand ready in case they were needed. By 11 p.m. on Monday night, two companies of soldiers that were destined to the war's front were actually sent instead to police headquarters. Rerouted. Okay. And finally, graciously... Around midnight on Monday night, a downpour hit the city and stopped most of the action for the day. At least for a little while. So New Yorkers woke up on Tuesday, July 14th to a steamy post-rain city and more riots. The city was was also eerily still because the streetcars didn't run and people weren't going to work and stores and factories didn't open. The day would take an even scarier turn than the day before because rioters who had invaded the armory and other places were now armed. And because they were also, throughout the day, building barricades in some very prominent spots, also the riot was becoming less a protest of the draft, which it had started out as, and more of just an attack on Republicans and on African Americans. In fact, at 6 a.m., William Williams, a black sailor, asked a white schoolboy for directions to a grocery store was noticed by a group of white men led by Edward Canfield, who attacked him and beat him and stabbed him to death. And that was at 6 a.m. Gangs would also throughout the day attack boarding houses that they thought rent rooms to blacks, even brothels that served a mixed clientele. And it was even like just the suggestion that they
2: might have black people there These mobs were being driven by rumor and gossip, speculation.
3: And throughout the day, the the rioters were taking bricks and stones and wood and building these barricades up 1st and 3rd Avenues and along 9th Avenue in Midtown. In fact, on 9th Avenue, the barricade went more than a mile from 24th Street all the way to 51st Street. Can you imagine a barricade? from 24th to 51st and during the day they they'd run for protection behind these barricades racing out to attack homes and people and then back for protection which, you know, made it easier for the police to find them. They knew that, that these riders were hanging out behind the barricades, but also harder for the police to get to them because they were so well fortified. The important thing to remember
2: also is that the city is not that much developed beyond right. the, the, the 50s. You know, you have Central Park that's recently built, and the Upper East and West Sides are, are slowly being developed here. But for the most part, the city's concentration ended in the 50s and 60s.
3: The morning's papers were, of course, carrying the story. The Times ran the headline, Crush the Mob, saying, No man, whatever his calling or condition in life, can afford to live in a city where the law is powerless. This mob must be crushed. The world and the daily news were less anti rioter, referring to the rioters as, quote, the people. Meanwhile, these people continued to attack and loot and burn, they attacked wealthy homes attacked Republican businesses. They destroyed the bridge crossing the Harlem River, uh, the Washington Hotel at Broadway and Chambers Street, the Ferry House at 42nd and Hudson, the police station at 22nd and 2nd Avenue. All these places, imagine, burned to the ground, attacked, looted. One thing they weren't attacking was Wall Street, and that's because the banks were fortified and there was a warship stationed in the East River just at the end of Wall Street with guns pointed at where rioters might go. On Tuesday morning, commander of the 11th New York Volunteers, Colonel Henry O'Brien, who you mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, and his men went to 34th and 2nd Avenue to assist policemen who were under attack. To scare off the crowds, O'Brien ordered his men to shoot off a cannon in the streets above the rioters' heads. There are varying accounts now about what happened, but it seems that some children were injured, perhaps one fatally. O'Brien went off after the attack and after the skirmish had died down to a nearby drugstore. When he came out of the drugstore on 2nd Avenue, he was noticed and attacked by the rioters who beat him to a pulp. They later took him back to his own home, where they continued to... Not just beat him, but torture him until he died.
0: Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms. And producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the gulf of mexico it's and not or see what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com investing in america
1: welding instructor alex Declaire knows vr training platforms like forge fx help students master their skills There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact.
2: At Amica Insurance, we know it's more than just a house. It's your home. The place that's filled with memories. The early days of figuring it out. To the later years of still figuring it out. For the place you've put down roots trust amika home insurance Amica, empathy is our best policy
3: even by monday night there were divisions among the rioters so that black joke squad who you had mentioned before which partially started the riot turned against the rioters and started to protect their neighborhood by tuesday And other Irish Catholics and Germans were helping the authorities protect their neighborhoods and and turn back mobs and, and protect their homes. So the mob was not a unified whole. People changed
2: allegiances throughout the week, like people who started rioting and with legitimate grievances towards the draft on Monday, 24 hours later,
3: are helping out the police. So one person who we haven't talked about in a while is Governor Seymour. And that's because he was not in town at the time. In fact, he had been vacationing on the Jersey Shore the previous weekend. Oh, that's nice. He was aware of what was happening on Monday, but he didn't come back on Monday. Instead, he took a ferry over on Tuesday morning and headed to meet with the mayor at his temporary office at the St. Nicholas Hotel. There he met with Mayor Updike and General John Wool, the military commander of the East, and then they crossed over to address a crowd that had gathered on the steps of City Hall. Now, this crowd was, of course, made up of many of the same people who had been rioting against the policemen. Mm-hmm. They, this was partially an angry mob, but it also included other respectable citizens, including Horace Greeley, who had snuck out of his office to cover the event. There stood the the governor of New York, Seymour, with Mayor Updike, Boss Tweed, and Aoki Hall, another Tammany man mm-hmm. who would later become mayor and caught oh, up in all kinds of oh, scales mm-hmm. and addressed the crowd of rioters and he said i beg of you to listen to me as your friend for i am your friend and the friend of your families he then promised that he'd work for the suspension of the draft but spoke out against the violence but still he called them his friend he hedged he's hedged his bets a little bit here and i think that that really turned some people off these were, after all, arsonists and murderers and torturers he was speaking to. The governor also contacted the Archbishop John Hughes. As the leader of New York's Catholic Church, he wanted him to perhaps get involved in all of this. But Hughes had been sick and quite silent. In a turnaround that noon, Mayor Uptight did ask Secretary of War Stanton for federal troops to be sent in. And by that night, a new citizen police force, these people who had came forward, mm-hmm. forward to join the police, of a 1,000 people was shooting off cannons in City <laughs> Hall
2: Park. So basically, people who had never really fired ammunition before
3: now had at their disposal against the rioters. And other businesses were just protecting themselves. The Times had 150 volunteers protecting it, along with 30 soldiers itself. Unfortunately for Brooks Brothers, they did not have as many people protecting them. For an, its big store and factory on the Lower East Side, a crowd was gathering outside and people were planning to attack it and loot it and burn it down. And this was a place where they were manufacturing uniforms. Right. well, it had also had its own labor disputes uh, four months earlier when 400 of its tailors went on strike. So it was creating all kinds of trouble. And I assume it also meant luxury back then as it does today. So these undercover police had been on the scene there at, at, at Brooks Brothers But they were spouted by the crowd and chased off. And by the time they came back with backup, the looters had already gone inside and were on different floors in the store. The the police were chasing looters around. They were firing at them, firing through clothing, tripping down staircases. You can imagine the chaotic scene of fire and pillage in the Brooks Brothers store. Jackets and pants flying all over the place. An estimated 50000 to to $100,000 worth of clothing was either looted or destroyed in the attack. All night long, fires were burning around town, brothels were attacked, and Mayor Updike got a telegram at midnight from Secretary of War Stanton, who was sending five regiments from Gettysburg to New York. They wouldn't arrive until Wednesday night.
2: Now, the next day... There was no abating the riots, unfortunately. And on top of it, it was the hottest day of the year. I should mention what's going on outside of Manhattan. The other future boroughs are also experiencing violence and draft riots. I mean, Brooklyn, the third largest city at this time, was also having some disturbances. Of course, not anything near what New York was having, of course. But that particular evening of Wednesday, there were these two gigantic grain elevators that were around where Red Hook is today. They were torched and destroyed, and it was filled with grain that would have fed thousands of New Yorkers. Throughout this day, of course, the lynchings continued. All this horrible violence against individuals continued to happen. By this time, there were calls to eliminate the draft entirely and to to basically call it off. The newspapers and politicians at this point are just basically shouting at each other. The Common Council, in fact, voted to create a $2.5 million pool of money that would be computation fees for anyone that was chosen in the lottery. And this was dangled in front of the rioters and saying, look, we're
3: doing something about this. The draft is over. Don't worry about it. Meaning that Tammany Hall was willing to basically bankroll anybody who wanted to buy their way out of the draft. Yes, use the city's pockets
2: to get everyone out of the draft. And this
3: didn't appease the rioters because at this point they weren't really rioting about the draft.
2: No, no no one was really listening. The police force was trying to come up with different strategies to quell the violence. What made this really difficult is, of course, problems with the communication. Those telegraph lines were still down. They ended up dividing the city into four zones. The mid-Manhattan east and west were two different zones. The area below City Hall was another zone. And then the more isolated and less populated upper Manhattan above that area was also another zone. They were able to more successfully move people around. And like they were a little bit more successful by this time in stopping some of the violence. I will mention one more thing about Wednesday, and that that is that the center of violence that afternoon was at 42nd Street at 10th Avenue, and there was a huge clash of rioters and police. And this is one of the most bloody incidents between police and rioters. Almost 50 people were killed at this particular point. And across town on 1st Avenue and 18th Street, another similar scuffle was happening where at least 30 rioters were
3: killed and 10 soldiers. By Thursday morning, things were really starting to calm down. The morning newspapers, in fact, ran a letter from the mayor pleading with residents to go back to work and for stores to open back up. And some of the streetcars were working again. By Thursday, 6,000 troops were in the city, and they were training. They were training along 3rd Avenue. The 8th Regiment artillery troop trained shooters in the streets surrounding Gramercy Park, which is strange to imagine. There certainly was some violence. Sergeant Charles Davids was knocked off his horse by a mob on 22nd, between 2nd and 3rd, and beaten to death. And when federal soldiers went to retrieve the body, they were attacked as well, which led to a big standoff as the rioters took refuge in a house. But in a turn, the soldiers actually stormed the house and took the rioters prisoner. That was the last battle of the week, and by nightfall, it was all over. Meanwhile, on Thursday, the Archbishop Hughes, who we mentioned... Oh, is he finally going to say something? Well, he published a letter in Thursday's paper, and he plastered signs about town asking for citizens to assemble at his home at Madison 36th Street to hear him speak the following day, on Friday. Mm -hmm. And by Friday morning, the city really was, for the most part, back to normal. More horse cars were running again, tracks had been relayed, Workers went back to work, and the telegraph cables that you mentioned Mm -hmm. were being repaired. So the city was creaking back to order. At 11 a.m., Archbishop Hughes addressed 4,000 people gathered in front of his his home. He was a sick man, and he sat in a chair on his balcony. Uh, He only had six months to live. But he gave a speech praising the city's fine Irish population but pleading with them to act in a more honorable fashion and bring about change by democratic means. And he said, quote, when these so-called riots are over and the blame is justly laid on Irish Catholics, I wish you to tell me in what country I could claim to be born. But all of this moralizing (laughs) came a little too late. Mm -hmm. He had, after all, not said anything for the entire week. He had waited five days to address the subject.
2: And by this time, there were conservative estimates, believe, 120 people dead, but more likely up to 500 or even a thousand people who had died in the riots.
3: The post was claiming that uh, bodies of rioters had been buried secretly at sea, so it's kind of hard to know, but it's probably oh, somewhere between there.
2: Mysterious. You know, people would continue to die after the riot, of course, all the injured people, there were thousands and thousands of people who were injured, Um, millions of dollars worth of damage to the city. And today's
3: money would be 60 to 100 million dollars of damage. 100 buildings were burned down during the riots and 200 more were looted. Now, by the next
2: week, there were more militia in New York just to ensure that further riots wouldn't happen again. The community of black New Yorkers, of course, were devastated. Many of their homes were destroyed. Many of them were killed. Some of them were able to escape out to rural areas and eventually moved out of New York City entirely. In fact, one-fifth of the black population escaped out of New York because of these draft riots. Interestingly, one community that some of them moved to was a, a village called Weeksville, which is, uh, was an African-American village that is located in Brooklyn. You can still visit Weeksville today. There's a few structures still standing there, and it has a museum that you can visit during the week, and I definitely encourage you to. It's in the Crown Heights area today. Now, those kids from the orphanage, by the way, they're okay. They had a little bit of a rough time, though. They were eventually moved to Blackwell's Island, today's Roosevelt Island, but they were still wearing those, like, charred, dirty clothes, There was a huge outpouring of community support to help the children. And Greg, whatever
3: happened to the draft?
2: Believe it or not, I mean, it is kind of incredible. You'd think, like, why would they dare do this again? In fact, it resumed the very next month, on August 19th. The difference, of course, was a few very important differences. First of all, there's 10,000 troops mounted in the city to assure that there's no violence that goes on. Tammany Hall had actually taken control of the situation and assured the constituents with a sort of wink and a nudge that everything would be okay. For instance, Boss Tweed's own name was drawn in the lottery. And, you know,
3: everyone laughed, Oh, Boss Tweed, because, of course, he's not going to go to the front lines. So Tammany succeeded then in buying every New Yorker out of
2: conscription? Better than that, the Common Council formed an exemption committee that paid substitutes for people that were drawn out of that lottery. Soon, more than double of the soldiers that originated from New York were all actually substitutes that were paid by the city. According to the New York Sun, quote, 142 drafted men had provided substitutes. 49 men had paid the $300 exemption fee, and only two had actually joined the Union Army. From New York City? From New York, yes. In fact, this created a cottage industry of brokers, of middlemen. It's sort of like finding an apartment where a middleman would find a substitute for you and for a small fee, you pay that broker and they would... Enlist that substitute. Of course, this creates a bit of problems because some of these substitutes were coerced with booze, a promise of more money, and they would sometimes be deceived by this unregulated broker business. You even had a lot of bounty jumpers who accepted the, you know, the money to be a substitute and then escaped town. Many months after the war, people were thinking, well, is this a, a Southern conspiracy? Some believe that they, were, they found rioters in disguise that were well-dressed, and they thought that they were operatives. It was just the gossip of the day. But New York would definitely be susceptible to foreign conspiracy. And in our next podcast, we will talk about the final years of New York City in the Civil War. New York is still victim to hoaxes and conspiracy that derive from the clash of the North and the South. If you'd like to take a dip into some reading material to get more information on the draft riots, one book I would recommend is by Barnett Schechter called The Devil's Own Work. I actually had an opportunity to see the author at a New York Historical Society event just a few weeks ago, speak about this book. And the Historical Society actually has several events regarding New York in the Civil War. So just go to their website for more information. So thank you for sitting and experiencing the draft riots with us. Have a great New York week, whether you live here or not. See you real soon.
0: BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022.